Okay, well, uh, it's an interesting reading that we got to do, particularly because of where the video wants to take it, which is what was the New Testament doing with it. But maybe it would make the most sense for us to take it because we read essentially out of four different books for us to have a look at each one, maybe more thoroughly. Does that seem okay? Yes. So, so Obadiah... The New Testament's not using that very much, except we will see it in Paul. And there's a particular sentence that's used, which is, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And um, Paul ends up using this to sort of say, listen, um, God has always, well, I want to say a bad read of Paul has used that to fuel, if you know uh, John Calvin's writings, that there are some people that God chooses to save, those are called the elect, and some people that God chooses not to save, those are the damned. And there is nothing the damned can do to alter their course, nor is there anything the elect can do. God chooses who gets saved because Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, um, That, I want to tell you, is taking Obadiah so literally that it fails to take Obadiah seriously. So I want you to consider what's really happening. Um, Esau is a cipher. Esau is a cipher for the nation of Edom. And you get some different um, uh, locations. In fact, um, Mount Seir... S-E-I-R, is also called Mount Esau. Well, there's no such thing as Mount Esau. (laughs) There's Mount Seir, and Edom is in modern-day Jordan. So we actually went through Edom. It's in the north of Jordan, like where Amman would be, if that makes sense, or up toward um, the Golan Heights, right? So that would be the nation of Edom. They're a Semitic people, so they have, their language is very related to Hebrew. And what Obadiah is basically saying is bad things happened in Judah and the Edomites did not come to the aid of their family members. <laughs> they rejoiced. Uh, when they were fleeing, uh, they cut them down. So they basically picked allies who were not in their family. They allied against their family. That's a real event. If you go back to Genesis, it's very clear that Isaac loves Esau more than he loves Jacob. It's extremely clear. Rebecca prefers Isaac. <laughs> Rebecca gets Isaac the blessing. If you read the story, Esau's not really a bad guy. He's just not a successful hunter. But he's not didn't do anything bad. And that's why it's really, really important, I think, to think through this. Uh, Essentially, Obadiah is trying to say um, that Judah comes from Jacob, not from Esau, and that Judah are these people that God has stayed in communion with for whatever reason. But that, again, if we read this and say, oh, God hates the descendants of Esau, I think we made a grave mistake. I hope that's helpful. He was a farmer, not a hunter. No, Esau was the hunter. Jacob was the fa- Jacob was essentially the farmer. Okay. Esau was, you know, sort of, yeah, yeah. He's the hairy one. Esau actually means red. 
and he was born in Genesis covered with hair like a goat, which is not possible. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a caricature. Maybe. Was he? <laughs> Neanderthal were all redheaded. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I got it from. Oh well. Um, but but again, hear the indictment, and again, like really, Obadiah is written against a people for doing a particular thing at a particular time. And if we universalize that, then we've got God hating people because of who they're descended from, which is not logical and does not make sense, right? And I would tell you, um, I completely reject Calvinism because God, it's hopeless. You know, it's just hopeless. And uh, beyond that, the idea that God would arbitrarily choose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell is so outside my understanding of love and grace that I just can't go there. So I just, I can't even, I can't read it that way. I can't. Can I ask a question? Please. All right, so were the Edomites part of one of the 12 tribes? No. But they were still... So the 12 tribes... They were were relatives through Esau. They're cousins. Our cousins. I got it, I got it. And that actually becomes a really interesting way to read this. And you could choose to take that literally, or you could choose to say, at the end of the day, and I wouldn't even go greater than our cousins, our cousins, at the end of the day, we could look at our family versus your family, or we consider humanity as the human family. That's really interesting, because sometimes we want to tribalize, and say, how could you do this to my family? And we can have this feud between different families. And I think another way to view it is, it's a feud between one family. It's an inner family feud, because at the end of the day, what Adam and Eve tell us, whether you believe that story or not, is that we're all part of the same family. And, and, um, and God got mad at the Edomites just because they were happy because the Judeans and the Israelites were suffering, and he punished them for, for having that attitude. So that's one way to read it. Another way to read it is, that's what Obadiah says. I just don't think God gets mad. I mean, I, you know, I just think that's a human thing. And punishing, I mean, this is a funny thing I've realized, and this is really helpful in a parenting video. I wasted a lot of my time being mad at my son for doing what I said, but with the wrong attitude. Don't look that way. And, you know, I realized I was watching this video, every American has a right to protest. We have a right to protest. We do not have the right to be disrespectful, and we don't have the right to be defiant. But think how much parenting time you wasted because the kid did what you asked but didn't do it like with a smile on their face or didn't do it immediately. What a waste of our life that was as if we behaved like that. Americans have the right to protest. Now, if somebody says, I'll do it, but I hate you, that's not going to work, right? That's disrespect. That doesn't work. But going, God, and then doing what we asked... That's, that's an American fundamental right. <laughs> I mean, really, just think about that. 
We believe in that right. If a police officer gives us a ticket, I mean, we know better than to mouth off, but we could say, geez, why'd you pick on me? American right to protest, right? Guaranteed ticket. Probably, but you may be getting one anyway, you know? Yeah, they try to give me a ticket out in the parking lot here. Yeah. Because I, yeah, because I, my handicap sticker was on the seat. Yeah. And I was inside waiting to pick up my grandson and one of the mothers came in yelling, you better get out there, they're going to give you a ticket. And I went out and I said, what's the problem? You ha you're in a handicapped spot. Uh-huh. Well, there's no sticker. I said, uh, I forgot to hang it. It's right there on the seat. And he got snippy. Oh, no. And I got that seems snippier. And I said, besides that, this is private property. How can you come up here and give me a ticket when this is private property? <laughs> and he cut. Well, I have the right. I said, okay, this is your, I've seen him before. I said, this is your rock, right? You see, I said, I am here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday with my grandson. I'm here Sunday going to church, sitting in exactly the same spot, in exactly the same car. And you mean to tell me that all the times that I hung up my thing, that you did remember seeing me sitting there with my sticker? And he looked at me, and I'm thinking, oh, shut your mouth. You know, I mean, and he looked at me and said, well, I won't give you one this time. Okay. I opened the door, got, hung my sticker up, and thought, I'm here every single day in that one little spot, and there's nobody else parked around me. Yeah. So but I think I, should have I think we have to use a sports analogy here. This would be sort of like when the Oilers moved to Tennessee, mm -hmm. and then we got the Texans, and the Texans <laughs> go and play in Tennessee, and the Titans win. And the Titans fans are happy, and then God's mad that they're happy and it's going to punish them. It's just, that's crazy, right? I mean, we just, it's crazy. So, a lot of this is about feeling language, and boy, if we go much past feeling, I, this is really tough. You know, I just think it's really, really tough. Again, think about how we began this morning, right? I mean, there's no way that God rejoices in getting even. God rejoices in justice. That's the clear message. So I think we have to hold on to this really carefully. I hope that's okay that I said that. And maybe I'm pushing my perspective on the rest of you. Thanks for putting up with it. <laughs> it it's true. I think, it, I think it's true that uh, the difference between justice and Revenge and feeling. I mean, listen, this is where I think the Bible is a very powerful book because it doesn't always say here's how you have to act. It does a very good job telling us how we already behave. We already know how this feels. You're going to get... <laughs> you're happy that I got a ticket and you didn't? I hope you get yours. Well, who isn't happy that someone got a ticket and you didn't? I mean, I mean, you know, I mean that's the thing, right? You're not glad they got a ticket. You're just glad you didn't get it. So, keep in mind the military situation was really dire. So, so again, you've got Rhode Island and you've got Maryland 
against California. Oh, you should have thrown in with us, Maryland. Together, we could have beat California. Get real. I, you, I mean, again, that's, that's the deal, right? But I do think it puts feelings really strong. And it does offer us, right? I think if we take it really well, we don't think about God is going to get you if you're grateful you didn't get a ticket. But I do think there's an important thing, and I think in this police situation we talked about this morning, there's, great, there's gratitude we didn't get a ticket, but there's also sorrow that person got it, knowing that anybody can get a ticket if you drive for five minutes, <laughs> or two, I've heard, right? There's sorrow, there's sorrow in this situation for this loss of their life, but also for this person who's going to lose their Life. I hope that makes sense. There's a corrective here about our attitudes and not being gleeful about revenge, but having this thought, hey, but by the grace of God, there I go as well. I hope, I hope that's a good way to read Obadiah. It's not a face, a surface level read, but, I, but I'm not sure a surface level read is always healthy, if, if that's okay. Remember that Jacob and Esau struggle as brothers, and there's no way God is excited about sibling rivalry. I mean, there's no way. There's no way God wants a parent to blatantly favor one of their children, which is what happens all through Genesis. There's no way. Am I remembering correctly? I'm probably not, but I'll throw it out anyway. That Esau was born first. Yes. And Jacob was holding on to Esau's Heel. Which is medically impossible, but yes, that's how the story goes. Okay. <laughs> Again, if you took What's that, the, what is the what is the um, um, meaning of that? So um, they were fighting in the womb for who got to be first, because the understanding was the firstborn child was more important, and Jacob lost, and he spends the rest of his life trying to be first when he never can. I mean, I remember I told my Emery. And she was like four, that her brother would always be older than her. And she just could not accept that. (laughs) She was going to be older than him. You know, and that was a really tough thing. There's no way she could win that competition. And there isn't. And that's why it shouldn't be a competition. But see, in the olden days, the firstborn kid got 90% of the goods. And Jacob refuses to accept that. So he spends his life in this kind of um, Quixotean way right, like Don Quixote, on this quest to be the firstborn, and he will never be successful. At being the firstborn. He never he can. does trick his brother Jacob into being the, uh, the I guess, the uh, inheritor, correct? He tricks his brother out of the birthright. the birthright. He tricks his father out of the blessing, but at the end of the day, he's still not the firstborn kid. And what he has supplanted is not just his brother's rights, he's supplanted the entire family. It depends how we read the story. We could read the story and say, look at that, the underdog won. And that would be a very American reading. And what we fail to realize, the underdog wins at the expense of the whole family. Jacob doesn't beat a brother, he loses a brother. And when he comes back to Esau, Esau is willing to like even forgive him. And Jacob refuses to trust his brother, refuses to trust his brother to forgive because Jacob himself can never forgive. 
you said Jacob spent most of his life hiding from... Oh, he spent his life tricking and being tricked. That's his deal, right? Everything was by hook or crook. And he ran away from his brother because his brother said, I'm going to kill you. Well, listen, I mean, if we ran away from our brother every time they said that, boy, there wouldn't be nuclear families. If, if we are not supposed to put brother against brother, I hope this doesn't sound stupid, but why did God pick out the Jewish nation to be his most favorite against all these other, against their brothers. Now you've read this history, right? Look what favoritism looks like. <laughs> it looks like exile. <laughs> right, right. So I think the only way I can understand that, right, is that for whatever reason, this group of people were not the only ones God interacted with. They were the ones who responded in such a way that there was this constant conversation. Some, uh, somewhere in the readings, um, and I don't, I, I've got, got to mark it down, uh, the prophet was saying that God was welcoming to all people, mm-hmm. not just the Jewish people. Yep. Um, and I think that was that indicated to me that, that whether you were Hindu or Buddhist or anything else, that God was were coming to everyone. Yeah, is that a right read? I I think it's a great read. It's explicit in things like Second and Third Isaiah. You hear God's going to restore Zion, and that that's going to be a draw to all the nations of the earth. Right. So I think it's a, tr- it's a difficult thing to understand, like God choosing a people. And so I, I, th- my best way that I try to handle that is that God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. So the way God's favor works is we're meant to be satellites, <laughs> and we're supposed to take whatever nourishment and energy we get from God and share it to people who, for whatever reason, don't have that explicit direct connection yet, so that they can. And can we understand the prophets as each of them takes the paradigm and changes it a little bit, the same message throughout? I think I think that is a great way to do it. I think another way to understand it is that they're having a conversation about what it means to be chosen. Does it mean we offer sacrifices at the temple, or does it mean we practice social justice? Does it mean both things? Does it mean it's just us, or is God trying to draw all people? Who counts in all people? Foreigners, or eunuchs, or orphans, or widows? What about Edomites? And I think there's back and forth. And this is an interesting way to read Abediah is he's a voice in a conversation, not a conversation stopper. I don't know if that makes sense. We continue to have this conversation, and I'll just be very upfront. I, I know that there's a difference between holding out gay rights and when you imagine your child's future imagining them being gay and you're being okay with that. Those are different things. I'll tell you, 
I've crossed that threshold. I'd be fine if my daughter's a lesbian. I, I, really, I believe that about myself. If she were transgender, I'd struggle. I'm just not there yet. And that's not because I think it's bad. I just am not there. I, I know I would struggle, particularly if she changed her name to Henry, because I named her Emery. And listen, I've always wondered, would my life be different if I had a different name? Because I know what my short list of two names was. And I wonder if my life would be different if I had a different name. But at the end of the day, my parents named me, and I didn't name my parents. So, so I've given my kid this name, just like my parents gave me a name. And for her to change her name, well, it would be hard for me. Well, it's an interesting the term you used, given the name. That's almost like a gift. I hope it's a gift, and it's certainly one I guess she doesn't have to receive. And again, I believe in rights and all of that business. I just, I know it would be hard from, from me. And I was, if we had to do it, we'd probably do it. But I'm not actively imagining my daughter changing her gender. I can't imagine her being happy with a woman. I can imagine her being happy with a man. And what I care about is that she's safe in a mutual relationship and that she's happy. I've crossed that threshold. I hope that makes sense, what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, <clears throat> God gave uh, the Adam the prerogative of naming the animals. Is that not right? That's correct. And so that is a privilege that you have to, to do that. And it means something. I don't know what it means. Well, it means when you give somebody a name in the Bible, you have power over them, but not as to dominate them, but as to care for them. This is an important thing. We don't have dominion over the earth. That's a mistranslation. We have stewardship over the earth. <laughs> and when you name something, like when you name your pet, yes. you can name it whatever you want to. And, and in some ways, the name implies you have power over them, but you have power over them as their caretaker. Mm -hmm. And if you were to <coughs> abuse the pet you've named, there's something really wrong with that relationship because you've given them a name and an identity, and now you're hurting that. Uh, it'd be better if you didn't name it. <laughs> does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? You know my dog's name. I do. Let's talk about Joel, shall we? <laughs> Joel is one that we read every Ash Wednesday. And the line that we get to hear is, uh, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm. Now, they didn't blow trumpets. They blew a ram's horn that's twisted. It's called a shofar. And you blow that on the high holy days. And really it's a call to prayer and to growing closer to God. So this is a twist of the image. You blow the high holy ram's horn because God is coming near and you'd better be afraid. <laughs> because God is coming to deal with your bullshit. I mean, that, that, that's the deal, right? God is not coming to give you a hug and to make you feel good about all your ways. See, you've been spending time thinking that being God's chosen people means God's on your side. And that's wrong. God's not on anybody's side. You choose to be on God's side or not. And since you're not making that decision, God is going to give you the natural consequences of your choice. I mean, that's Ash Wednesday completely, right? God is not on our side. We are on God's side or we're not. And if we're not, we're punished. Like everybody else. And by the way, when we're on God's side, 
it may, doesn't mean we get everything we want in the world. It doesn't mean you win the lottery and you drive Bentleys or any of that business, right? It doesn't mean that. We don't, in the Christian church, use the chauffeurs, uh, chauffeur. We, we use one here. Well, that's good. At the Easter vigil, we play that's one. Good. That's right. When we make the great noise, yeah. We've replaced the shofar with bells, so much louder. And we don't use bells much anymore. Um, you notice that the whole book is about this punishing army that is really a bunch of locusts. I mean, it's like a, the uber plague of locusts. There's so many of them, it blackens the sky. So don't think this is like the heavenly host or the Chicago Bears under Mike Ditka. It's, it's not that. It's, it's, oh, this is a plague uh, of, of locusts. And, um, you know, this has happened historically that they eat everything. Again, it's an uber plague, and that's very rare, but it, but, it, but it happens. What's interesting is the prophet says, hey, return to God, and who knows? God might forgive you. Isn't that interesting? Who knows? <laughs> there may still be hope. Like, the sky is blackening, and God might pull that back. Who knows? It's worth a try. <laughs> yeah, it's, really, it's really, really interesting to think that God might deliver us from the natural consequences of our actions and even, honestly, from things like the earth is, is engineered to do this stuff. You know, like the earth is engineered to have earthquakes. God made it to do that. It's like saying, hey, if we could repent and live justly, who knows, God might even like stop the earthquake on our behalf. This is really interesting to think about. Um, this is where we get that image that is the entire message of Acts. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The reason I say Acts is because the disciples keep encountering people and wondering whether or not they belong in God's family. There's a group of people who are Greek-speaking and not circumcised. The Holy Spirit falls on them. Then there's a eunuch, crushed genitals. Can I be baptized? The answer is yes. Then there's people who were baptized by John, but they didn't get the Holy Spirit. The answer is yes. Then there's people who are Samaritans, yucky people. Yes. So every time people say, okay, I went with God here, but surely that's it. God says, oh no, there's this other group of people. Oh no, there's this other group of people. Uh, and Luke relies on this image. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, even children, even women, even eunuchs, even Babylonians, even Assyrians. That's in the middle of this whole locust business. I have been in the, in the center of a locust thing. It is not pleasant. Uh, it's got to be one of the scarier things. Uh, you, I was, it happened, and I had to walk out to my car, and they were everywhere, and I, I can't describe what a horrible thing it is. Did they get in your car? No, but I, I had to step on them as I went. Ooh. Yeah. That's, I mean, imagine, I mean, you know, like, it's very possible they'll eat the clothes off your body if they're made out of natural fibers. If you're wearing wool, a locust will, will eat yeah. your clothes. They're everywhere. Yeah. They're very icky. <laughs> and that becomes this, this idea for, like, the army of the Lord because there's something supernatural about this quantity, right? 
Isn't it a great line, though? Who knows? God may forgive you. <laughs> I have two Jewish friends, and I swear that sounds like the way they talk. I mean, there's a connection between them, that, obviously. But that was the kind of thing, you yeah. know. Kind of, what is it that they say? Oh, when you leave a Jewish person and they say, God, I swear my mind's gone. It's gone. It's all right. Anyway, God willing. God willing. Yeah, we'll see you, God willing. Yeah. And, you know, but that means something different to them, I think, than it does to... Oh, you know, actually, I grew up being a Christian church, and we would say, like, I'm going to do this tomorrow, God willing. Yeah. It's an interesting yeah. thing. Um, and it's a very common Arabic expression. You say, inshallah, which is mm. also, like, God willing. It's very Hispanic. Is it? Si, si, really? si, si Dios, oh, si, exactamente. Si Dios lo quiere. I, I, I know it most from Arabic. Our tour guide, my first tour guide in Jordan would always say, Inshallah, tomorrow we will go here and here and here. Inshallah, we'll have dinner. And I actually thought it was really lovely. That's a really lovely phrase. You know? well, and and I, I think, I, I don't know, I just had this sense of the Arab culture impacting the Spanish mm, Yeah, through Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big yeah, time. Yeah. Big time. And it, the fact that Hispanics eat goat and cabrito, mm -hmm. which is very common. And yeah. It's a tasty animal. <laughs> it is. Well, it's yeah. a delicious animal. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, to me, a very, very Arab. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Spanish words that actually come... Directly from the Moors. Yeah, yeah. directly from the Moors. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Couple interesting bits in Joel. God hears us and is going to come to comfort. I don't know if you notice this, comfort the land, the animals, and the people. God is going to comfort the land itself. That's really interesting. Um, we, we do get to read the sins. Joel says there's, there's basically two things you've done that are not okay. One is you've divided the land. And that may or may not make sense to you, but again, keep in mind that a family inheritance was absolutely guaranteed through land. So when you divide an inheritance, you're, you're sort of cutting off a family's identity. Identity is tied to land more than it is just to name, right? And ours, our family, we think about our bloodline, but blood is only as good as the land that's the original gift. And when you lose that land, you lose your identity. So when you divide that, you're, you're cutting off a family's fundamental roots in their tree. Like, we don't think like this as Americans. We just don't. But the idea that the, the plot's been in our family for 100 years is very nostalgic. Imagine it's been in the family for 700 years. I mean, that's essentially what we're, we're, we're talking about. And these are farmers, not factory makers. So that the tide of the land is really, really important. It's maybe more helpful if you think about Bordeaux grapes. You know, Bordeaux grapes are valuable because the vines are 800 years old. And if you've got a brand new grapevine, sorry, it won't be making the same caliber wine. Right? The older the vine, the better. And that's kind of what we're talking about. The other thing uh, he talks about is men being sold as prostitutes, prostitution and slavery. I mean, to put a modern day name on it, it's human trafficking. So God is outraged at human trafficking. He is. Should be. Well, he's got a lot of 
I mean, we do too, don't you think? How do human trafficking? If you're just talking about human trafficking, apparently it's rampant and we don't see it. It's bad. <clears throat> it's pretty bad. Well, I think, I think we do. It's around us in human trafficking takes the form of poverty. It takes you know, the form of people on the street that are homeless. So I think we see it, we just don't recognize it. Yeah. It, it, well, if, if you have Hispanics that come from Mexico, families that are working for you, a lot of people come and do our yard work, people come to our house, um, they, they don't speak much English at all. Right. At all. And um, they, with me, with us, it's different because, well, I'm, one of them. Yeah. But um, they live in the shadows and they live very carefully. And what they do and how they say it and when they say it and where they shop and all that stuff. Well, we know one poor lady who's undocumented and she cannot go to the supermarket because she's afraid. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. So, uh, it's an interesting thing to introduce this thought, and I don't want to be offensive politically, that we get very upset about illegal immigrants when we didn't do anything to deserve being born <laughs> here. So we have to think about it, I think, very holistically. I don't mean, hey, everything's okay and whatever, but I mean we often forget we did not earn our American birthright. We just were born here. And it doesn't mean sometimes we think, oh, God blessed us because we deserved it, and that's false. <laughs> and, and you know, for for I think for all of us, the people that come in to do your yard work, your cleaning, a lot of the plumbing, you know, carpentry. You know, for me, they'll come, they would come in and they were doing some work in the bathroom. They were, Buenos dias, señora, cabula, yes. It would be easy for them, but they wouldn't do that. In, in other homes, that they, they couldn't, they wouldn't. Yeah. Like, uh, I hate that I learned German in high school. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> German in high school because there's very few German migrant lawnmowers, you know. Guten <laughs> Tag. Yeah. Anyway, um, do you notice this is a funny thing in the prophet Joel? It's really different from Isaiah. God roars from Zion like a lion. A lion is the strongest thing there is, and God is going to come and devour. You crappy people. So go ahead and turn your pruning hooks into spears and turn your plows into um, swords. It's all pointless because nothing's stronger than a lion. And there's this really interesting thing about the futility of the ways we resist God's justice. Anyway, that's Joel. So when you hear it on Ash Wednesday, remind your that the shofar is being blown in an ironic way. It's not, hey, God's coming to be close to us. It's, oh my God, God's coming close. We'd, we'd better get ready. In some ways, that's why we have Advent, right? God's going to come close. We should be prepared. Not because God's going to, I think the spin on it is, God's not coming to get even. We just want to be ready so we don't miss what God's able to do. And that, and that we forget that sometimes, especially if you 
for me, race Catholics, yep. when it was, there was so much about the punishments and all that. Well, see, and this, I think, goes really strongly, not just to Catholicism, but to the myths we tell our children. So if you don't mind me saying this, um, and every family makes their own choice, but um, St. Nicholas is a real guy who looked after people, noticed they were poor, and gave them means to come out of poverty. Jolly old Saint Nick is watching to see if you're good or bad and will punish you if you're bad with coal or give you toys. And we give our children, frankly, this sprightly figure who's petty like we are when the real Saint Nick is paying attention to you to help you rise out of poverty. (laughs) What if we told that Santa Claus story to our kids? Yeah, I, I, I just, it's, it's just funny. We tell our kids this elf on the shelf stuff to keep them in line and they'll behave and we don't have to deal with their attitudes. And I get that. But, um, you know, again, our kids identify Santa Claus with God and God's making a list about whether you're good or bad and you're going to get your reward in the end. And, and again, that's, that's a perversion of St. Nicholas and God. And God. <laughs> and that's where Catholic guilt comes from. Yeah, I mean, you know. And Jewish guilt comes from that too. And so does Baptist guilt. <laughs> comes from the mothers. <laughs> the best guilt givers. Yeah, who were kept in their own place, unfortunately, by that. Okay, better talk about Malachi. <laughs> Malachi is a real interesting one, right? Um, because there's a big lobby against the clergy. They're corrupt, um, abusive priests. They're offering sacrifices, but they're taking advantage of worshipers. They're giving blemish sacrifices. You know, they're giving God their second-rate stuff. And the, the, the message is, uh, hey, repent or perish. I mean, God's not going to continue to maintain priestly lineage if you're going to be bad people. The lips of the priest are meant to guard knowledge, like to keep it safe. And then, you know, I just I told you this before, not because I'm any kind of great person, but I'm always really loath to tell people what I do because I know they're going to judge me as soon as they hear it based on what they think about church or their childhood religion or whatever, you know? And I, I don't like being judged like that, even though I like judging other people that way. I don't, I, I don't like it. Um, you know what's so sad about what kind of... Sad about that is for me when I would say I was a principal and I'd say where you know surely at Clear Lake, you aren't in Clear Lake. Do you live in Clear Lake? How come yeah. you're not in Clear Lake? I'm in the inner city. And the silence that comes back, like, oh, then the other piece of it is like, oh yeah, you're Mexican, which I'm not Mexican. <laughs> I'm tenth generation. Yeah. But um, yeah. And that's, so there's, it's interesting how educate Shirley, she's an educator, so, so I tend to want to, I'll say a lot, I'll, I'm an educator. Yeah. And then, and then they start to push about, where were you an educator? Were you a public? No. Well, in the, in the second Malachi, verse 7 and 9, it says it's the job of the priest to teach the truth. That's right. People are supposed to look to them for guidance, and that's not what they're doing here. I don't think that's what we're doing nationally either. No. I hate to say that. Clarify? Well, okay, I'm going to pick low-hanging fruit like um, prosperity gospel preachers. 
I don't think they're safeguarding any real truth there. Um, Jerry Falwell saying that God punished us on 9-11 because of the ACLU and NAACP. I don't think that's guarding any kind of truth. I think that's, you know, stomping on it. That's inaccurate. Saying that any American president is God's chosen one is really leading to some kind of misunderstanding fundamentally. I know... That could mean a lot of things, but the words are really not clear. You know, I don't care who the president is. Um, I, this, this idea that God is engineering social situations is really tough for me to accept. Um, things like, hey, God um, took this police officer's life is not guarding the truth. You know, uh, saying that God is going to you know, punish this person in hell because of what they did to the police officer is not guarding God's truth. Like, I just think... When that's a criterion, words really, really matter. And we, all kinds of diarrhea comes out of our mouths. You know, it's just awful. You've probably said this many times before, but what do you, Mike Stone, define as God's truth? Well, I don't, I don't know that it's clear and flat, you know. I mean, I think that's the thing, you know. And, and uh, if I did think it was clear and flat, I wouldn't be an Episcopalian. Uh, or maybe I would. I mean, that's, that's not to say you're one or the other. But I grew up that truth was very black and white. And, and like I started out with, you know, I see that there's a whole really big, robust, complicated nature to the world. I think that's probably true, you know. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you the gospel itself. When people say, what's the gospel? I used to say, Jesus died for your sins. But, you know, I I just think it's so much more complicated than that little phrase. You know, what does Jesus mean to me? And what does it mean to be even a priest? I'd probably tell you something different every day of the week, you know. And, and I will tell you, like, I've chosen sometimes for better or worse, to try to be really upfront that, boy, there's people in this parish that are way better people than I am. Uh, and, I, and I absolutely believe that. Uh, I am just wearing this uniform and they're not. Um, and I choose to believe that's okay. <laughs> you know, there's times I can say things that are, I can do the liturgy and not feel it at all. There's times I can not feel it at all. And there's times it can grip me so I can barely talk. Uh, and I'd be lying if I told you any different from that. Um, and, well, I don't know. I, just, I, choo- I choose to believe that, and I choose to believe that doesn't disqualify me from being a priest, but in some ways that normalizes priesthood. Um, but I do know that I have to be careful with what I say. Um, and, and I'm not always. Um, I try to be when I'm on stage. I try to be really careful... I'm trying to be better about even when I'm not on stage, you know. I try to be even more careful about what I write. Um, It's it's tough business, though, you know. It's tough business. I'm in a tough business because, I'll I'll tell you, I spend half of my time doing not-priest stuff, as I understand the priesthood. And I'll just give you an example. I had my first three years here were really great years. I mean, really smooth and great and last year, I dismissed an employee for really great reasons, and it was really gross what happened. <laughs> it was really gross what happened. And, you know, I'll just tell you as an employer, I can't tell anybody why I dismissed my employee. I cannot do that legally unless I want to be liable. 
and people made all kinds of assumptions and boy it was dreadful and listen managing employees how many classes do you think i had in seminary about that i'll show you none i didn't have a single class in that all my classes were about hey how do we read the bible and how do we give pastoral care and how do we preach uh, there's no employee management 101. I sit over a budget. I mean, listen, if I change the color of the floor, people will probably leave the church. I don't have any training in that. You know, I asked us to fix our roof and, roof and people got mad. That's not a priest's business to do. Well, whose business is it to do? It's our building. You know, I mean, this is the tough sort of business, right? And And... I don't want to say, well, people will never be happy. It's true, people will never be happy, but this whole business about how it is we guard truth is, is complicated and hard, you know? Your next priest will probably not be as into the school as I am, for better and worse. Your next priest will probably not know as much about building and construction as I know. It's just very unlikely, and therefore will not be involved in it like I am and have been. What's right or wrong, it's just different stuff. How do we be guardians of that? It's tough stuff. That's what I think. <laughs> so there I am on truth. And I'll tell you, most priests, I meet them, and I automatically don't like them because I buy into the stereotype too. I think most of us are jerks and scumbags, and we won't even be honest about it. That's what I think. There's a couple good gals out there and a couple good guys, and I always say... Bob Flick's one of the good guys. I think he is. Bob Flick's a good guy. Um, but I wouldn't tell you, about the, tell you that sentence about every priest in our clericus. And they probably are good folks. I just naturally don't trust clergy, which is funny because that's what I am. All right. I'm pretty sure they don't trust me either. I'll just let you know. My cousin went to Catholic seminary, ended up not being a priest, he's a doctor, but um, he took a short detour around the curve when he married my cousin and that disqualified him from being a Catholic yeah, priest. Yeah, that'll do it. But his best friend, who is still a priest and has been for all these years, is an atheist. How, do you, how are you a Catholic priest and an atheist? And according to Tom, he's not the only one. He's practicing. I'll tell yeah. you, it's funny. I'll, what's funny is... I don't have a great explanation for that. But because you asked, I think this is really, really important. Um, maybe I should just be a little more personal and say that I met my wife in seminary. She's been to church here about three times. There's lots of reasons for that. She's supportive of what I do in principle. I don't know how she feels particularly. And I think, to be honest, one of the things that's important in this role if I based it all on how I spiritually felt, I would have quit already. Because <laughs> I don't always spiritually feel great. I'm just, you know, I don't. There's times where it's not even just days, it's like months. Um, but, I, but I do believe, I believe my role matters in the community. And, and, and in that case, when the traditional words fail me or don't resonate, I do think that's a higher power orientation. There's something really important about people who show up in hospitals. There's something really important about having somebody in a uniform say, God absolves you. 
there's something really important about baptizing a child because of what it means to the community. I think there's more to it than that, but that's a pretty high minimum standard anyway. You know? I mean, I used to teach math, and I thought it was really important, and then there were lots of months where I thought, this doesn't matter at all. My job is to trick students into thinking what I say is important. And um, that's somewhat the case, right? I mean, are, is your average American going to understand conics and why a hyperbola is important? No. Sorry. Do any of you know why it's important? I mean, you know. But what was important, because I'm an educator, was your, who you were as a human being with them. What, whether, what, the stuff you were teaching had nothing, I mean, had... Yes. You know what I'm and saying? the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake yes, is important. Yes. To not, I, yes. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's what so... And I, I, you as a, as a priest... There's that piece of what you do that is very important for the people. Just who you are. As, it's important. As, as it's, it's, it's all of it. It's, it's the and, whole thing. And maybe that's how we safeguard truth as we be human beings and we're really up front. I mean, if I ever start doing a sermon series where I'm the hero of my own story week after week, you owe it to me to say you're, you're practicing idolatry. Right Now, I don't always have to be the villain because I'm not always the villain, but I am sometimes, and you'd better hear that. You know, you'd better hear that. So what do you think of Malachi? Well, I mean, again, I hear, here's some interesting thoughts, right? I mean, just to go through here, I think he's right on. I mean, I do think there's a special standard for us who think that we're entitled to privilege and position because we're priests, and Father knows best, and boy, I'll tell you, sometimes I want to claim that. And in some ways, it's my Episcopal right. Here's this funny business, right? This property belongs to the Bishop of Texas, Andy Doyle. It is his. I am his absentee landlord. <laughs> I, can, I can give notice of trespass legally to anybody on my property. Now, that's wild. I want to make sure you heard what I just said. Yeah, I'll say it again. <laughs> I can go to the police and say, Tim Cavula cannot come on my property. If he does, I want you to arrest him as trespassing. And I have that authority as rector of this place. That's crazy. <laughs> so there's this... Like, you, re you represent the bishop. I do. And so you would, by saying that, yep. as a representative of the bishop... He's empowered you to represent him as the as a uh, as the owner because he's That's the owner. That's it. And so you can say, Tim, you have to leave. Um, yeah. And but it's 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 really the bishop's right. The bishop has already given me that power, though. Yeah. And by the way, if I do that willy-nilly, the bishop can't do anything to me except say, I wish you wouldn't do that. This is what I mean about. Sometimes we get in this position, man, it's so nice to be called the Father and for people to say, oh, the Father's going to speak, you know, and to have this positional authority. But we all know real authority is relational and it's earned. And, and we sometimes jockey between the two. I mean, sometimes when people are having, I'll just tell you, you know, if I was going to pick 
the color of the walls in here, and I had a committee of five people, and four of us said, yes, we love the color green. And the fifth one said, well, I don't like it. Boy, I would love to use my positional authority and say, well, I'm picking and too bad. You know, I just, because it's easier and it's more efficient, you know, and sometimes people want us to do it for that reason. And and listen, I mean, we... we um, for us to talk about, oh, how hard this... Everybody already tells me how hard this job. This isn't job isn't hard. It's a job. You know, it's... If we didn't know what we were signing up for, God help us, you know. But, but I mean, you know, it's a life we've chosen. Nobody made me do this. Um, I just think that's important to be up, up, up front with. And, and so we have to weigh that really, really carefully. Again, like to say God ordained us to do this holy work and don't get in our way, I'm not sure that's guarding the truth. And I think Malachi is offering this really important corrective for both of us. And at the same time, Malachi says, bring your full tithe into the storehouse. This is not a monetary economy. This is people who are giving crop shares to clergy because they don't have property. They can't grow crops because they don't have land. I have land. I happen to have a very fine piece of property. I don't grow, well, I do grow vegetables on it, and I won't need a tenth of your garden share. Um, So in some ways, this is a little bit antiquated. Um, We've settled on tithe, I think, as a way of thinking about how do we give resources to support the work of church? Because, hey, 10% is really easy to calculate. (laughs) 12% is really difficult to calculate, if you don't mind me saying, right? A tenth is a basis. I'm grateful to God there's people who give more than 10%. I'm aware that not everybody gives 10% to the church, but they might give 10% between all the organizations that they support. I would tell you something funny. In general, people who give 10% make less than $75,000 a year, which means they have less capacity to tithe. And people who make lots of money tend to be terrible givers. I'm just going to let you know. It's a bizarre phenomenon. I don't know how you preach on this because I didn't think God says, you have to give 10% of your money to the church. I don't believe it. I grew up hearing that. And I will tell you, Baptists are much better about giving 10% of their money to the church because we got told that. They listen to the whole thing. Sell our Test test me and see if I don't pour out the blessings. You you emphasize that all the time. And And I'd not be guarding the truth. (laughs) Or I could say, listen, God's blessings will come to you, but they're not going to be material. But that's not what you need. That's, I mean, God has things better than physical blessings. That's what I think. But I think it's hard for people to understand that. That's pretty easy to here's, understand. Here, here's what I think, though. I think God is not trying to do some kind of money exchange or swap meet with us. I think well, the truth. That's what that says, though. Yeah. Well, I think God loves a cheerful giver, and I think the truth okay. is, if you decide to give grace yeah. to people, that's rewarding. If you, on the other hand, try to invest in some grace, I think it'll be really disappointing. Mm-hmm. 
you can't, you, money can't buy me love. The Beatles knew that, right? So if we've got strings attached to gifts, guess what? They're not gifts. They're trades. Well, you know, we always tip 20%. I was just thinking about that. But we never get anything back. I mean, really, you, you, you don't get anything back for that. You just do it. If you tip 30%, you might give something. Next time you showed up, they'd be happy to see you. I mean, that might be a blessing. You know, my approach to, um, to, to uh, that um, uh-huh. is that I think that when I tip somebody 20%, and I usually tip them at least 20 sometimes a little more, my thought is they need that extra whatever way more than I do. So that's why I do it. I used to be a waiter, and you know, a waiter is going to make minimum wage no matter what. At the end of the day, we have to declare our tips, and if we didn't get enough, we'll get paid minimum wage. We will. Um, I think we all understand, though, that, uh, hey, I mean, I hope we understand. Um, people are not explicitly getting paid minimum wage, and so even if I have a bad server, I give them 15%. Yeah. If I have a good server, I might give them the extra um, but to me, that's not really about grace. To me, that's about a social contract. <laughs> you know, tipping waiters is really a social contract. It's not about giving. If you give more than 20%, then that might be about giving. But it's still not. They earned it from you, right? So yeah. gifts are not connected to earnings. My kids, and, my girls were waitresses. Like, oh, yeah, I was a single mom, and they... <laughs> it can be a tough job, but you knew it. Having waited, if yeah. I get a real sour so I, one, so boy. I will, yeah, I, but I'm, I'm generous because I know a lot of them are just... It's kind of interesting. This is off topic, but if you go down to Mexico, you tip 10%. That's about what they expect. If you go to New York City, you probably better tip 20% yeah. or more, more than 20 or they're going to look down on you. So, what's up with that? I just, well, it's different social contract. Again, to me, tips are social. Co- I have to tip my guide when I go to Jordan and when I went to Croatia. Yeah. The agency told me to do it. Yeah. And so, how much? And they gave me an pro- approximate range, right? right? But even if they did a great job and I heightened the tip, please understand that's not a gift. It's a wage. Yeah. So, the question is do we give God gifts monetarily or do we give wages to God? Like, you gave me happiness, so I'll give you money back. That's an exchange. Gifts are not about exchanges. They're one way. Here you have it. Not about earning at all. They come from, and to be honest, you can give wages happily, but you can't give wages joyfully. You can only give gifts joyfully. That's what I think. So, um, Paul ends up saying God loves a cheerful giver. Well, God loves, you know, happy exchangers, too, I'm sure, because God loves everybody. But how we live into 10%, whatever your threshold is, I think the question is, can we be generous, and can we be joyful while we're generous, and can we not expect and we give something, can we just be grateful and joyful to give what we chose to give? Now, sometimes it takes work, I'll tell you. Having grown up... With the expectation, expectation of 10%, that's in my bones. And 10% is my minimum. It is. And I, you know, uh, it actually has nothing to do with my income level. Uh, I mean, I make twice as much money as I did, boy, seven years ago. And uh, if 
what's sad is I can think, oh, it's harder to give 10%. And that's crazy. <laughs> How can it be harder to give 10% when I am making twice as much money? And I was doing it back then. So I give more than 10% away now. Uh, it's great that we're a two-income family and that we manage our money separately. It makes it easier for me to do that. Um, but, but we do. And, and um, I don't know that anybody's obligated to do it. I know that because of the way I was formed, it's important to me to practice generosity even when I don't feel like it. And in that sense, it can be joyful. I don't feel like it and I do it anyway. Joy isn't about feelings. Joy is about what we, what we do. Yeah, that's funny. Oh, that's funny. Huh? We, we, have, we have the homeless bags that we give up. Yes. And Tim came home the other day and he said, Hi, I gave away four homeless bags today. And, and it, it, how can I explain it? It was just the joy that he, and it's, I mean, it didn't, those homeless bags don't cost as much. Yeah. But you, you give them, and, and they go, Oh, thanks. I mean, they just, there's a real sense, there's just a little thing, but those senses of gratitude and just there's this little piece of love that goes out and you just know it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, you feel very comfortable giving as opposed to money that you might not feel comfortable yeah, giving. Yeah. And when you have it to give, you look for someone to give it to instead of, oh God, they're asking me for money, I hope they don't see me. It's a totally different relationship. Yeah, it's, yeah. When, yeah. I, I think I've told this before, but one time my phone fell into a homeless bag. I, I just had the phone and it fell. And I thought, oh, and I gave it to him. And he, he, he looked and I saw it and I said, Tim, my phone went in there. And he went under the freeway, under the freeway with my phone, waving my phone. We turned around and came back and he gave me my phone back. Yeah. Moments of joy, right? Where your expectations get defied. Yeah, and, and gifts are like that. Bag. Gifts are about defying our expectations yeah, by giving yeah, something away. He could have taken the phone and sold yeah. it, put it, I don't know, whatever. Anything. He yep. could have done anything with that phone. And it's still up there. <laughs> yeah. Waving my phone. Um, I think that's what Malachi's about. That's the full tithe. It's not just the 10%, it's how we bring it. Well, you know. Uh, had a plumbing problem in our house and they had to dig under the house and it was hot and I was watching this one non-English speaking person and I thought you know he's been out there for hours mm-hmm. and it was lunchtime and I had overcooked so I had to, so I went outside with a bottle of water and a plate of food because I felt he deserved it. I mean, mm-hmm. he was working, and he just looked at me. And I said, lunch? And the look on his face, I don't know when he had a good meal. Asked, I mean, it was a good meal, but I felt so good. <laughs> when I said yeah, I felt yeah. selfish yeah. because I had it to give, but it. I felt like, I felt good that he actually appreciated it. Sure. And I think that's part of the problem in a lot of this giving is that people don't appreciate it. And that, but that's what makes a gift different from an investment. Mm -hmm. An investment, it matters what they do with it, and a gift, it doesn't. 
And I so, know with, uh, with my tipping, I go to a lot of the same restaurants. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, like I have waiters everywhere that I've dealt with for years. Yeah. And I tip them 20% because I know they have to share their tip with the bartender right. and the busboy. Yep. But at Christmas, I give them a big bunch of money. Yeah. Well, I mean, we pay our cleaning, level, cleaning lady an extra clean mm -hmm. at Christmas, you know? I mean, and that's important. <laughs> um, okay. We'll finish Zechariah next week because we're out of time. Thank okay, you. I'm, I'm going to be gone. I leave next Wednesday.